0: All right, so let's go ahead and begin then for tonight. Welcome back. And we were off for a week, but it's going to be back and just start to head through a, the bulk part of this study on the doctrines of grace. We're going to lesson three tonight on original sin. And real quick, where we've been past couple weeks, or at least two weeks ago, we started with the sin problem. That's where we're starting this study. I know when you study the doctrines of grace, you want to jump to... The hot button issues like predestination and election, but we have to start first and foremost with sin and the sin problem. And so our our first question is how has sin affected the human condition? That's where we're we're trying to begin. You gotta understand the bad news before you can rightly understand the good news. And so we started with last time lesson two, which was like the first real lesson. We started with historical introduction, but first real lesson last time was on the fall we found that sin was not original. wasn't part of God's original created order. Rather, entered through Adam and Eve's rebellion. And certainly, we learned how their sin affected them. They were cursed personally. They encountered spiritual death instantaneously. They started to decay, and eventually, they would know physical death. So certainly, we we saw very clearly how their sin affected them. The next question we had, which we, we actually left off with, is how did Adam and Eve sin, how did the fall affect everyone else? How did the fall affect us, uh, those who came from Adam and Eve, which is which is all of us here? What are the effects of the fall after Adam and Eve? And that's the, the question we want to talk about tonight with this topic of original sin. And this is continuing to build our understanding of sin and the sin problem, which is absolutely fundamental and foundational to Understanding the solution to sin, which is salvation, and all the doctrines of grace as well. So what we'll be getting there very quickly, soon after. But tonight, a lesson on original sin. So like I said, Adam and Eve were created good. And that means they had sin-free natures that were inclined toward good. So if Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel before the fall... It's pretty safe to assume that Cain and Abel would have been born with good natures, inclined toward good, just like them, the same natures that they had. However, as you know, Adam and Eve fell into their state of sin before having any children, which means everyone that's ever been born has been born into a post-fall world. And so our question is, what exactly did Adam and Eve sin, what effect did their sin have on their descendants, which includes us? So where we're going to begin, uh, start off simple, just some basic observations from Scripture. And this is your homework, the, the intention of your homework from last time, really just some good old-fashioned Bible study to get you into Scripture, that you're looking at the verses yourself, you're looking up the verses yourself, you're, you're getting acquainted with the Word. And whether you were able to do it or not, we're going to review that right now. First, very simple observation, just get some baseline facts. First, Scripture teaches that all are sinners. Not a shock or a surprise to you. We can readily observe that all people sin. Every human being, with the exception of the man Christ Jesus, was has been born a sinner. And there's never existed a sinless person. All have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard. And no orthodox or even semi-orthodox Christian would deny that truth. It's so easily confirmed in scripture, just simple observation. So you have a list of verses you might see in your handout. I'll just go through some of these. For example, First Kings eight forty six, where Solomon said, "When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin." He recognized there's none who don't sin. Psalm one thirty verse three, the psalmist says, "If you Lord should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand?" No one. If God keeps an account of wrong, no one can stand because all are sinners. Ecclesiastes seven twenty. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. You may have encountered a few oddball people who claim that they never sin, very deluded in, in one way or another, but I mean, there's, there's so many verses to say, you, you've got some, something going on, you, you don't see things quite right. You know, the famous verse, Isaiah 53, 6, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. No one's left out from that. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. That's our status before salvation. You can see Romans 3, verse 9 and 23 there. Really, all of Romans 3, that's Paul's big point that all are sinned. None are without excuse. None are good. None are righteous. But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's one of the huge points he's making in chapter 3, that that's without exception. Every person is in sin. Romans 11.32, God has shut up all in disobedience that he may show mercy to all. He's condemned everyone in sin. I mean, we could keep going. We we don't need to. You see the rest in your your homework there. There's just a plethora of verses establishing all have sinned, all are sinners. Okay, you get that. That's simple enough, although still worthwhile to to state. Another assertion, the second basic assertion we're going to start off with, just by way of simple observation, is that Sin is neither caught nor taught, but inherited. It's an inherited problem. In other words, people are born sinners. So first, all people are sinners. Second, people are born that way. People are born sinners. Sin is not just like a bad habit that's passed down by the example of parents, although it can be to some extent, but that's not at its nature where it comes from. It's not just some deplorable teaching that people have fallen prey to. Instead, all people are born sinners, and they express sin as soon as they're able. I think simple observation can affirm this fact, which Scripture teaches, to which every honest parent can attest. I mean, children, uh, even at the youngest age, they don't have to be taught sin, rebellion, disobedience, selfishness. They're born with sin natures, and it all too quickly comes out. Anyone here has any experience with, you know, that toddler? Well, what's, what's at the root of sin? That the heart of sin is selfishness. Adam Eve's rebellion. We studied last week. There is a desire to, my will be done, not your will, Lord, my will. And, and that's all sin now. All sin at its core is all about me pleasing myself, my desires, my interests, my will be done. It's amazing how that comes out of little. One-year-olds, two-year-olds, right right away. As soon as they're able to express themselves, they will express this selfishness. Where does that selfishness come from? It's not a factor of, you know, it's only rich and spoiled kids who are like that. You can have kids in poverty who have no toys. Maybe all they have is a stick, but it's my stick. I will not share it. They will inflict suffering and harm on others who threaten their stick. Just You guys know the drill, all of you. I think your parents are most of you, and and it's just... They just come that way, and Scripture asserts that. Genesis 8.21, the Lord testified after the flood. He'll never curse the ground on account of man. He says, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. God did the flood on purpose for a reason, but he says, I'll never do it again because that's not going to change humanity. They're sinners from youth. They're, they're born that way. It's in their heart. And no amount of flooding the earth is going to change that. There has to be another solution. That's what God is trying to teach. Job recognized, Job fifteen fourteen, He says, what is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? There are none pure or righteous on earth. You know, Psalm 51, David's psalm. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly. He says, verse 4, against you and you only I have sinned and done, evil in what is your, uh, done what is evil in your sight, so you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He understood that from the womb he was in a state of sin. Like Psalm 58 verse 3 says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go straight from birth. Again, we could keep going. Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We have a, a congenital defect called sin nature. It comes from birth. It's with us. It produces our acts and attitudes of sin, but it's a heart problem. And so like Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And later it says, we were by nature children of wrath. We lived in the lust of the flesh. We indulge in the lust of the flesh. Why? We were, by nature, children of wrath. That's the effects of the fall. Again, we could keep going a lot more verses, just getting some base facts, not out of the way, but establishing them. So our scripture affirms our sin is not something merely learned or acquired. It's inherited from birth. We were born wicked and wayward, and we go astray from the womb. A third final observation that we want to start off with that is also undebatable is that all people die. All people die. All people sin. All people are born sinners and therefore all people die as a result. And of course, the connection we're making is people are dying because of sin. In you know, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So, okay, that's, I know you all know that already. So just bear with me and see where I'm going with all this. So far, we've, quickly affirmed the universal sin problem. Sin is a universal problem. It affects all people. All people sin from birth and die as a result. But that demands an explanation. Why are things this way? How do you account for this universal sin problem? Why is it that every child born is a sinner and will eventually express sin? Well, how come there's no exceptions to that? Of course, apart from Christ. How come, you know, you, you don't just get lucky and your kid is just, oh, it happens to be perfect. My kid doesn't have a sin nature. Well, why is it? Why doesn't that happen? Why are things this way? How, how come sin has so affected every single person like this? Well, to, to build on this factor, the only explanation is congenital, namely something has affected our human nature. Something has affected who we are as humans. Such an inclination to sin was not part of Adam and Eve when they were created. Before the fall, they didn't have this inclination to sin, this fallen nature that seeked and served sin. So whatever is going on today must be a somehow to the effects of the fall. Whatever happened with that first pair and, and the consequences, somewhere in that we've, we're going to find the explanation for why things are the way they are today. Now we know, and, and in a way I've already established, all are born with a sin nature. Humans sin because they're sinners. You're not a sinner because you sin. You're a sinner, therefore you sin. You know, you're, you're, you're a sinner first. You're not just after the fact a sinner because you sin. Your sin nature comes first. And when people sin, they're merely acting according to their fallen natures. Now baby giraffe will stand and walk around almost immediately after birth, whereas humans, it may take a year. Why is that for giraffes? It's just in their nature. It is simply in their nature. Or a baby shark. It will be born with a full set of teeth and will start to hunt instantly after birth. How how is that? Why is that? It's simply a part of its nature. It is built in, programmed in its nature by God. That's just how it is. And similar to humans now, why, why do all sin from birth? Well, it's simply part of our fallen natures. Not our created nature, but now after this curse and the, the effects of the fall, part of our fallen natures. Remember, things changed after that fall, we learned last time. Creation itself, the nature of creation changed. Now there would be death and decay and destruction and disease and so forth. And also human nature changed, and fallen nature as we've been saying. So again, this is why Ephesians 2.3 says we were by nature children of wrath, that we have a nature change after the fall. So, so far, I know you, you guys still probably know all this. It's a good refresher. We've affirmed all people sin. All people sin from birth. All people die because of their sin. This is the universality of the sin problem. But it's not the end of it. We want to establish one more truth that we're going to spend the rest of our time on tonight. It's going to take time to get there. We want to add one more biblical truth. Not only can we affirm that all people die because all sin. How do we account for the sin problem, the the universal sin and death problem that we have today? Why are things today the way they are? Well, we can first affirm all people die because all people sin. But we can also affirm that all people die because one sinned. And notice the, the, the comparison and contrast there. All people die because all sin, But also we can say all people die because one sinned. The Bible directly connects our sin and guilt, our, our sin nature, our sin and our, our guilt to Adam's first sin. And this now brings us to the concept of original sin is what we're really going to spend the rest of our time talking about, original sin. Just about every Christian has heard the term original sin, but it's one of those terms you maybe not really sure what it, what it means. Most people will just assume it refers to Adam's sin, like, oh, it's, it's the first sin, it's the original sin. It's actually not what we mean by it. It's not theologically what we mean by the, the term or the concept of original sin. Original sin, rather, as a, as a theological term, refers to the results of Adam's sin. The sin that is ours as a result of Adam's sin. It's basically mankind's state of sin into which all people are born. And no passage says more about this original sin than Romans 5. So that's where we're going to be. So turn to Romans 5, which is 12 through 21. Romans five twelve through twenty one. Now the reason we're going to spend the rest of our evening on this, this is notoriously known as one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture to interpret. It's challenging, and you'll see why in a little bit, just because of some of the the phraseology used, the the, the syntax especially Romans 5:12 which we're going to peer into it's it's known for just being you know what what does that really mean you can read it and reread it and reread it and still come away thinking I'm not fully sure I understand what he's trying to say here but we want to we want to figure it out we want to study it we want to learn what the bible says about this original sin or more specifically how is our sin and our status connected to Adam's <clears throat> sin that that original sin how has it become ours? How has it affected us? And this passage explains it. In your homework, I didn't get have you get too detailed because it's a lot. I just want you to read it, get familiar with the passage. We're going to do all the legwork right now. So it might get a little technical here, but you guys can hang with me. Let's start by reading this passage. Excuse me, Romans 5, 12 through 21. Reading the NASB, so follow along. It says, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that's a lot. And like I said, you read that and you're like, well, what? I, I mean, I, I get I, Maybe like phrase by phrase, I can maybe break it down. But just you put it all together, it's just, it's so much. And you know, the way Paul writes, it is so intertwined and interconnected. You got to just go really phrase by phrase and just break it all down. Now we're not going to do all of these verses, but I do want to hit the highlights here, especially on the surface, you can tell he's talking about Adam, he's talking about Jesus, right? He's making some comparison and contrast between Adam and Jesus. You can probably gather that much question is, what? Well, what is it? What's he trying to say about Adam and Jesus and, and all that stuff? So let's, let's find out. Start in verse 12. Verse 12 is, is the big verse here. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, and then you'll probably see a dash, and, like a, and that's it. There's, it doesn't really complete that thought. Well, first off, verse 12, it begins with what? The word, therefore. So first things first, we kind of travel back a little bit. A very quick mention of the context. We can't just start in Romans five twelve. That That therefore connects us to verses 1 through 11, the first half of the chapter. What, what is Paul talking about there? Well, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Even chapter 5, verse 1, begins with therefore. What you see in chapter 5, it's almost like the first culmination of Paul's teaching so far in Romans. He's taught that all are sinners, all are lost in sin, all are without excuse, all are unrighteous, all have sinned, right? But the grace of God was revealed in Christ where we can be justified by God's grace through our faith in Christ apart from works. So he's taught this grand truth of justification, righteousness, by God's grace, through faith, in Christ, apart from works. It's like the the base elements of the gospel we believe, right? So you probably know all that. In chapter 5, he's starting to get into some implications of that salvation. He mentions in chapter 5 how, and reiterates how, through this justification, we're reconciled to God, that's chapter five verse one. That's a big implication, right? We have peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. I mean that's good news, right? That's a huge implication. We have peace, we have reconciliation. We're saved from wrath. There's no more wrath. You notice in verse six, he says, "We were helpless." Verse eight, we were sinners." Verse 10, we were enemies. But the good news is Christ. Has redeemed us from all that. We're justified by faith. We're saved from wrath. We're made at peace with God. Such that verse nine says, "Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him." So I mean, it's all really good stuff. It's it's starting to build the implications of Christ's salvation, this justification, which means being made right with God. That that's given to us as a gift through the work of Christ, by God's grace, as we believe in him. And so what Paul is starting to do in Romans 5 is connect all the redeemed to Jesus. I mean, all that we have, all the good stuff, it's all because of Jesus, right? We're all just connected to him. That's why we're redeemed and reconciled and at peace. We're all connected to him, right? Now, as the chapter continues, Paul will continue to teach what Jesus does for us, but he's going to do so by contrast. And this is why he brings in Adam. He's going to make a contrast. All of the redeemed were connected to Christ. Uh, the same way, all of the unredeemed, they're connected to Adam. Adam, he, he's the head of all of humanity, especially fallen humanity, whereas Christ, who is referred to as the second Adam, I've heard that before, Because like we read in verse 15, I believe, or 14, he he came as a type of Adam. Or Adam was a type of Christ as well, we could say. He's the second Adam. And he's the head of the redeemed. And so we find some comparisons and contrasts that he's going to form in the passage we just read, 12 through 21, between Adam and Jesus, the first Adam and the second Adam. And so I had you, by way of homework, to do your best try and pinpoint some of the comparisons and contrasts. I want to point out the main ones to you here. So, in this passage, 12 through 21, it all, of course, centers around two men, Adam and Christ. Verse 14, Adam and the one who came in the likeness of him, the second Adam. Both of these men were heads or representatives of their group. Adam with the unredeemed, Christ with the redeemed. Okay, that's simple. Also, you'll see, contrasted, or in a way compared, they both are known for one grand act. They both did one thing, and they're known for that one thing. Or at least, you know, what he's saying here. He's really pointing out the one thing they did. For Adam, it was what? His sin, right? It was his one transgression. Verse 12, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18, verse 19. The transgression of the one, the one act of sin, the one trespass. He's known for this one act. And in the same way, Christ is known for one act. Of course, it's a different act. What is his one act? The cross. His death on the cross. See in verse 18. So as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. And that one act of righteousness is his death on the cross. So, Adam, head of the unredeemed, known by one act, his sin. Christ, head of the redeemed, known by one act, his death on the cross. Another comparison contrast is the the results that flow from these defining actions. Adam's one act has results. What are they? Condemnation, guilt, and death. See in verse 15, because of his one act, many died. Verse 16, verse 18, there resulted judgment and condemnation because of his one act. Verse 17, there resulted death because of his one act. His one act known for condemnation, guilt, and death. Christ's one act is known for what? Justification, being made right with God, the gift of righteousness, verse 7. We receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, verse 17. So, that's actually okay. That's not too bad. You're starting to get this comparison and contrast of these two figures. He's teaching us what Jesus did for us through contrast. But he's also teaching us about sin. Remember, we're trying to understand the sin problem. And the more you understand and in a way appreciate the sin problem, the more you will understand and appreciate the sin solution. You guys get that, right? So, let's delve further into this contrast to see more about the sin problem that is taught quite a bit in this passage. So far so good? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Now, we got to get back to verse 12. Cuz our, our one of our earlier questions was how did Adam's sin affect us? And to answer, we have to dig in and get pretty technical with verse 12. Verse 12 is notoriously challenging. So I hope you had coffee. I hope you're with me. It's you know, a little warm in here. It's trying to stay awake and follow along. Verse 12 is hotly debated, and the reason is it seems incomplete. I mean, read it again. Doesn't it just seem like an incomplete sentence even? Look, verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. It's like, wait, that, that just doesn't fit. That doesn't flow. It feels like he left something out there. You get what I'm saying? It's actually reflected in every translation. They end verse 12 with, with that dash. And it, it doesn't really pick up in verse 13. There is some incomplete thought going on in verse 12. We expect him to complete the thought with a phrase like, you know, so or just as. But the point is, in verse 12, he starts a thought, he doesn't finish it. And so how, how, how do we make sense of this? And you'll see where I'm going with this, just, just stay with me. First, to help you even understand what's going on here, here's a little, you know, t- teaching on conditional statements. Take you back to English class, right? We'll start with English before we get to Greek. <laughs> conditional statements. Conditional statements that they're formed of two parts. You've got the condition and the consequence. You know, like if, then. If is the condition, then is the, the consequence or consequent clause, right? If you throw the ball, then I will catch it. And for to, to have a complete phrase or complete sentence, a complete thought, you need both. You need the, the condition. And the consequence, the result. Otherwise, it's incomplete. If that second part isn't there, like if you just say, if you throw the ball, that's it. That's incomplete. We expect it to be completed, right? So for any conditional statement to be complete and tell us something, we need both. We need the condition, and then we need that the consequence, that final clause. You get that? Now, in English, there are different ways to form this conditional statement. You can say, if, then... Or in other ways, just as, even so. In English, these are actually called conjunctions. Uh, that's, that's how they are. And in Greek, you have the, the conjunction "hosper." It's a conditional word most often translated just as. So it's, it's the same thing, you know, if, just as. It's that condition. And so the point we have so far is in the Greek, just like English, whenever you see this conditional statement, you expect the result. We expect it to be completed, the thought to be completed. So I'll give you some examples from Scripture where this word that is used in verse 12, see at the beginning of verse 12, he says, therefore, just as, see that, that phrase, just as? That's that Greek word, hospere, which is, which is the condition. So now we have a condition. But in verse 12, it's never completed. Now, here, let me give you some examples from Scripture where the same word is used, and it is completed. Like Matthew 13, verse 40. Jesus says, Just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. See how he completed the thought? It's like, just as the tares are gathered and and burned up, so it will be later. He's making a comparison. That's the point of a conditional statement, to make a comparison or a contrast or something like that. So it's got to be completed to do so, right? Matthew 24, 27. Jesus said, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. You've got just as, even so. He's making a connection. Just as you see lightning really fast, well, so will my coming be. He's teaching us. You've got the condition. You've got the consequence of the condition, and it's teaching. Are you still with me here? Okay, I'm going to have to check in every now and then to make sure I don't leave people behind. But So, In Greek, just like English, when you see the condition, we expect the the consequent clause. And in Greek, the consequent clause is going to be the word houtos. It's often translated as so or even so. So in verse 12, we would expect to see just as through one man's sin entered into the world, even so, dot, 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 you know, even so, fill in the blank. But that's not there. It's not found in verse 12. Now, what's interesting is later in verse 19, he actually he gives the same thing, but there it is completed. So just, you know, stay with me. Look at verse 19. Notice he says, for as. That word as, that's the condition. That's the Greek word hutas, that or a hospital rabbit, rather. And that's the condition. So he's saying, for just as through the one, man, one man's disobedience the many remain sinners, even so, that's the consequence, right? Even so, Through the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous. Same thing, verse 21. He says, so that as sin reigned in death, there it is again, as, that's our conditional, even so, grace would reign through righteousness. So there it's complete. There we have two complete thoughts, two complete comparisons. The trouble is in verse 12, we don't that's that's what i'm trying to establish so far we have a condition that started and not completed and that's troubling it's at least it's in confusion which is why this verse confuses a lot of people it's just he says just as but but it's not completed now you might notice though in the middle of verse 12 you see he says and so death spread to all men you see where it says that mm-hmm. and so you see the word so and you think well isn't it completed right there No, because the word and comes before it in the English and the Greek and the Greek. And And that's that's a key difference. That's what throws throws us off here, because when we have this this statement that actually the word for so in verse 12 is that word "hutos." that is a consequence. But when you put the word and in front of it, it's not completing the thought. It's actually just extending the thought. We're still waiting for another phrase to come in and complete the thought. So it, it, it doesn't fit. We would expect hutas by itself or hutas kai, which is the Greek word for and, but not the other way around. Now I know that's going to go over most of your head because you're not familiar with the Greek. Just to, to boil it down, what we have going on in verse 12 is Paul, he starts a thought, and even though he says, and so, he's not completing it. He's actually just adding another thought, but still not completing that thought. Now, here's an example to hopefully make it make more sense for you. If I said this, this sentence, just as he threw the ball, so I caught it. Is that complete? Yeah. Just as he threw the ball, so I caught it. Got the condition, got the result. It works. What if I said this? Just as he threw the ball, and so I caught it. That's it. Is that complete? No. See, I added that and, and it, we're still left waiting. Like, I'm still trying to say something else. It, that it, we're still left for a consequent clause. Okay, all this goes to say there is no direct matching consequence in verse 12. There's no completion to the statement he makes. Now, grammatically, not like you care about this, but it's known as anakaluthon. If you remember that, I'll like buy you a candy bar next week or something like that. You know, good luck. How do you spell that? <laughs> I guess I, maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> it's A-N-A-C-O-L-O-U-T-H-O-N. It's known as where the author, he interrupts himself mid-thought. And it's on purpose usually where sometimes the author does that to challenge the readers to think more deeply on something. So here's what is, is likely going on in verse 12 in, in Paul's mind if we can dare to say. Paul starts verse 12. And his whole point is he's going to start to build a connection between Adam's sin and us. He's going to tell us how Adam's one sin affected us. But halfway through, he interrupts himself as if to remind us of our own sin. He goes off and talks about our sin as opposed to how Adam's sin affected us. As if to, to give us the impression, don't, you know? I'm going to talk about Adam's sin, but don't forget you've got your own sin as well. So look at verse 12 again. He says, Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. Right there we expect him to complete it. But instead he he takes us and says, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Then he goes off on a tangent. So he's, he's interrupting himself to teach us about our sin. But that's not the end of it. Because the good news is he will revisit this thought later on and reintroduce this comparison he started to make in verse 12 and he'll finish it and you find that later in verses 15 and then 18 through 21 he finally goes back to that original comparison and he gets his thought back on track and then he finally tells us what is the comparison between Adam's one sin and us what's what's the connection between Adam's one sin and our state remember that's our question right and so later, especially in verses 18, 19, and 21, Paul restates and rephrases the conditional comparison and completes it. Now, here's why I really wanted you to have your homework from last week, because I gave you a little table. And so look at it now. You'll see that table. You, you kind of need a visual. Look, you know, look on with someone next to you if you need to. You see the conditional clauses and the consequent clauses. You see it now? Now, hopefully that makes a lot more sense to you. It's on the last page of your handout from last week. And this whole passage is filled with these conditional clauses because he's just teaching through contrast, comparison and contrast, right? And so you start in verse 12, and he says, Just as, how spare that word, through one man sin entered into the world. And the consequent, it's empty. There is none. There's no completion, right? But later, he revisits and basically restates this comparison. Each time, though, he does complete it. So that's where we go to find out what she's trying to say. Verse 15. He says, if by the transgression of the one, the many died. That's the conditional. By the way, sorry, verse 15 there in your box was a typo. It should say many, not man. By the one, uh, the transgression of the one, the many died. The consequence, he says, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So the contrast. You've got the transgression of the one contrasted with the gift of the one, and it affected many people. See that? That's a pretty clear contrast in verse 15. The transgression of the one affected many contrasted with the gift of the one, which also affected many. Verse 17, same thing. For if by the transgression of the one Death reigned through the one. And the flip side, side, you have basically the, the gift of righteousness of the one. Verse 17, you have Adam's one transgression. The flip side of that is Christ's one act of righteousness. The result for Adam was the reigning of death. The result for Jesus is the reigning of us. We reign with Christ. So you see what he's doing? He's just building all these contrasts, teaching us about sin, and about Christ, right? Now, let's really look at verses 18, 19, and 21, because here we see the, the same words show up. Remember I talked about the word hospere, which is that conditional word, and then hutas, which completes it, right? But he uses them in 18, 19, 21. This is where he's really revisiting the thought from verse 12 and finally completing it. With me here? Okay, we're good, okay. Verse 18, he says, So then, as... And that's a shortened form of Hosper. Through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, Hutas. Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. What's the contrast? You've got one, one transgression versus one act of righteousness. You see that? And the result, condemnation to all men versus justification to all men. See it? Pretty clear. Verse 19. He says, For as spare. through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, who toss? Through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So you have Adam's disobedience versus Christ's obedience. See that? And the result: many are made sinners versus many are made righteous. Very clear now. That the contrasts now are very clear, aren't they? And then verse 21, lastly. He says, as, spare, sin reigned in death. Even so, hutas, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin reigned in death. Now grace reigns in righteousness to eternal life as opposed to eternal death. So that hopefully helps the passage, helps the contrast make more sense. Now, just to, to try and bring it together here. Remember, we're asking the question. How does our sin and our death relate to Adam's sin? How did death spread to all men? Some people will answer that question and say, well, death spread to all men because all sinned. And that's, that's their only answer. And they'll say, look, at Romans five 12, isn't that what it says? Look at verse 12. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so in other words, there's no connection between our sin and our death and Adam's sin because verse 12 makes no connection, right? And look, we've already established the fact verse 12 does not make any connection. That's true. But you can't stop at verse 12. You have to get verse 12 right and understand Paul is not completing the thought there. He completes the thought later. You have to go beyond verse 12. You got to get verse 12 right and go beyond. Paul is saying more here. Verse 12 does indeed say, death spread to all men because all sinned. But that's not the end of it. It's true that all people die because all sinned, but Paul will go on to make another connection or a real connection between Adam's sin and, and our sin and death. And so already, a quick side note here, already by setting verse 12, we can already reject the Pelagian view. We Remember that guy Pelagius I introduced you to, he's, he's not... Armenian, although in a way he was a precursor to Arminianism but he was like very radical in human freedom and 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 a lack of sin and depravity he believed that we have our sin and our state right now we have no connection to Adam or the fall or 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 Adam's sin basically all we get from Adam is a bad example that's it he was just a bad example but we're born with the exact same free will as Adam we're born without a sin nature We have no connection to Adam's sin whatsoever. That's Pelagius. Already we can reject that. It's true. From verse 12, you don't get a connection to Adam. But you can't stop at verse 12. But you also have to get verse 12 right. And you realize, no, there is a connection between our sin and Adam's sin. Yes, it's true. We will say, all die because all sinned. Of course, we understand that. We have our own sin as well. But we will go further and understand that All die because one sinned. So now let's just, let's finish up now. We'll kind of bring it to a close and and talk about now. Let's really explain what is that connection then. If we're going to say death spread to all because one sinned, how does that work? What exactly is the connection that Paul makes between our sin status and death and Adam's sin? And so there's basically two answers, two ways Adam's. Sin, his one act, remember we kept reading, his one transgression, his one act. There are two ways that Paul explains in this passage that his sin affected us, and they are as follows. We we inherit a sin nature, and we inherit guilt slash condemnation. Those are the answers in the passage. We get from Adam a sin nature, and we also inherit guilt slash condemnation. If you want to see this, I'll show it to you. Look again at verse 19. Verse 19, for example, makes it very clear that through Adam's sin and rebellion, all humanity were made what? Sinners. Verse 19. He says, For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made what? Sinners. sinners. And in contrast, he says, even though, or even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So he says in that verse, from Adam we're, we're made sinners because of his one sin, his one act of disobedience. The many, and he uses many and all, really he's talking about humanity here. We were made sinners. It's a status change. We inherited from Adam a sin nature. Whereas at the fall, Adam's nature went from good to bad, from inclined toward God to inclined toward sin. So we're, we're now born with that fallen nature. We inherit that same fallen nature because of his sin. Verse 19, and we are made sinners. We are made sinners. So first, we inherit sin nature. Again, this explains why we sin from birth. This explains Romans 3. This explains there are none good because all are born with this inherited sin nature and sin inclination. So that's the first way Adam's sin that the original sin affects us. We inherit a sin nature. The second way Adam's sin affects us, we inherit guilt. We are born with guilt and condemnation already on us because of Adam's sin. This is made clear in verse 16 and verse 18. So let's read those. Look at verse 16. He says, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, It says, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in what? Condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. Hey, what do we inherit from Christ? What do we get? We get justification. Just for free. We inherit it. It's it's imputed to our account, right? Well, first, though, what did we get from Adam? What did we receive from him? What was imputed to our account from Adam? Condemnation. 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 Verse 18. He says, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. You notice the parallel. You guys know, how do we receive righteousness? It is imputed to us. It is reckoned to us by God's grace. That's what justification is. God gives it to us. He gives us Christ's righteousness. He transfers it from Christ's bank account to our bank account. We're imputed righteousness. But first, we've got such a big problem because first we were imputed Adam's guilt and his unrighteousness. That That's part of the problem, right? Remember, we're trying to understand the sin problem. Adam was our federal head, and in solidarity with Adam, mankind's head, God counted all humanity as guilty and worthy of condemnation after the fall. It's like Adam, when he sinned, he basically was like declaring war against God. His rebellion, as as a representative head of humanity, he entered a state of rebellion against God, he declared war, and that plunged all of humanity into war. And now all of Adam's descendants, you're born in a state of spiritual war with God, rebellion against God. From birth, man is at enmity with God because of our sin individually, collectively, and inherited. We have an inherited sin, which is called original sin. So the point, and here, uh, if you look at your handout again, you'll see another little chart there, just a little bonus. That this last point is unique to Calvinism. So you see that chart. A little Pelagianism, Arminianism, Calvinism represented it. Everyone will affirm, death spread to all men because all sinned. Why are things the way they are? Why does everyone die? Why is death a universal problem? Well, because of sin. Because all people are sinners. Everyone believes in that. That's good. Pelagianism stops there. We've already affirmed that's, that's wrong. That's a problem. Instead, Romans 5 teaches, in addition, our sin problem is even worse. Not only are you a sinner individually, but because of Adam, you have a sin nature and guilt. But just by way of nuance, that last phrase, that we inherit Adam's guilt, that part is unique to Calvinism. Arminians will agree that we inherit a sin nature from Adam, but not guilt. Now, I'm just telling you that now for reference. We'll talk about why that matters later as we get more into Calvinism and Arminianism. For now, I I trust you'll see what I believe Romans 5 teaches, that we get both. You saw it in the text yourself, didn't you, from verse 16, verse 18, and 19, that we get not only that sin nature, but also condemnation. Verse 19, there resulted... I'm sorry, uh, verse 18, there resulted condemnation to all men his one sin condemnation to all men now to this some might say for example Armenians would say against Calvinism that last point that's not fair that's just not fair for God to impute guilt to all of humanity just because of Adam I mean we weren't there we weren't in the garden we didn't do anything wrong Adam sinned that's not our sin we didn't sin like Adam and that's true But first, you need to remember, every person will be judged because of their own sin. Like on the day of judgment, you will be judged for your own individual sins. And in fact, that is what verse 12 teaches. We believe that. Verse 12, death spread to all because all sinned. I mean, that's a true statement. You will die because of your own sin. You will pay for your own sin if you're apart from Christ. So, I mean, that's true. We have to remember that. Secondly, though, you need to remember, even though we will not be judged for Adam's specific sin, the condemnation of his act infected all humanity such that we're all unclean before God. You just have to come to terms with that. <clears throat> Being sinners by nature we're cut off from God. His guilt transferred to our account, making us unworthy before God from birth. He's our head. He's the federal head of humanity. And so in solidarity with him, when he entered that state of rebellion, all of humanity did as well. An example, you know, imagine if the president unilaterally launched a nuke against, Russia, against Moscow, against Russia. Well, Russia would declare war, obviously. And at that point, every single U.S. citizen would instantly be in a state of war with all of Russia, even though... You had nothing to do with the, the launching of the nuke. That wasn't your decision. You probably wouldn't even have wanted to do that. Let's you you, say you didn't want to do that, but it doesn't matter. Your head, your representative, he declared war, and now you've got to live with the consequences. You're now in a state of war with all of Russia because of his one action. That's what you get when you live under a head, under a federal head, a representative. Well, that's what Adam was. That, that's Adam's role. He was the head of humanity. God created him that way. He's the first Adam. And that's taught very clearly by contrast with Christ being the second Adam, the second head of humanity. And so in Adam, that's what you get. He declared war. And there's no peace until Christ, who Romans 5.1 made peace, right? Apart from Christ, there's no peace. You're still in war. You're born at war with God. And the Bible says you're born in enmity with God, which is just like, you know, you're born at war. You've declared war. And you're born that way, and that's part of your problem. That's a big problem, though, right? That, that's something, you know, how, how are you going to deal with war with God? How are you going to overcome that? Anyway, a third answer, though, to some who might say, it's not fair that Adam's guilt would be imputed to us. Well, if you say that it's not fair for Adam's guilt to be given to us, at the same time, you have to then reject Christ's righteousness being given to us, because it goes both ways. Right? It, we receive Christ's righteousness in the same way, just by imputation. God, how are we righteous? Because of our works? No. We, we know that. We're not made righteous because of our works. We don't become righteous. We are declared righteous. That's what justification means. We are declared righteous by Christ's one work. Remember? That's what we just read. His one act resulted in the gift of righteousness to all who believe in him. So God declares us righteous. He takes Christ's righteousness and he, he gives it to us. He, he puts it in our account. So if you want to complain and say it's not fair for God to give us Adam's sin guilt, well, then you have to equally complain it's not fair for God to give us Christ's righteousness. At the end of the day, it's not fair, but it's, it's, it's gracious that we receive God's, Christ's righteousness. And for God to give us Adam's sin, it is only right, being our federal head, he plunged us into war. Why should we live by Christ's righteousness? Only by God's grace. So in all, though, hopefully you can see now, just to bring it up to a close, Romans 5. It compels us to affirm both truths, that death spread to all because all sinned, and death spread to all because one sinned. This gives us a greater appreciation for Christ, though. And this is just a takeaway just, just by itself. You should, you should thank God for this. Because Christ's gift of life conquers Adam's sin and our sin. Right? Remember, he had to do both. This is an important implication. When Jesus came, not only did he have to deal with our individual sins, which he did, he also had to do something about you know Adam's whole mess and that whole declaration of war and all that guilt. But he did both. And that's what we just found in Romans 5. It asserts that at your birth, at your first birth, what do you inherit? You get Adam's sin nature and Adam's guilt. Your first birth, you inherit Adam's sin nature and Adam's guilt. But thanks be to God that through Christ, at your second birth, at your new birth, you inherit Christ's nature and his righteousness. And that completely overturns and overdoes and and replaces what we inherited from Adam. It's, It's the answer. That's the sin solution all in Christ. The justification, the regeneration, we inherit Christ's nature and his righteousness at the second birth. And that really completes this parallel. I mean, there's, I know, Romans 5, it's hard. It's It can be confusing. It's long. It's detailed. But you wrestle with it. Spend time in that contrast. There's a lot to learn between Adam, the, the head of the unredeemed, his one act of sin resulting in guilt to all, and Christ, the head of the redeemed, his one act of uh, of grace resulting in righteousness to all a lot to learn now all said and done you may say okay why, why does this really matter why did we even study this tonight and uh, just to finish our, our first goal here these first few lessons is simply to better understand the sin problem and this does help we just further understood this sin problem more more specifically as the bible teaches it and you have to because later we're going to spend pretty much the, the rest of these lessons Debating over the sin solution, i.e. the doctrine of salvation, the doctrines of grace, and you just can't skip this stuff. A lot of people, they want to skip over the fall, skip over original sin, because let's just jump straight to the good stuff. But you can't. This is the foundation. You have to really understand how sin has affected the human condition. And for that, you just have to go back to the fall last time and original sin today. And already we've learned that our sin problem, it's universal, it's extreme, it's congenital, it's deadly. I mean, it's a big problem. Not only do we have our own sin, which is enough, like we sin enough, right? We also have a problem of Adam's sin, that original sin, which gives us our sin nature, which makes us sinners, and also an inherited guilt. We're at war with God. Like, if anything, you should learn, our sin problem is huge. I mean, this is a huge deadly problem. Already, it should seem to you that like sinners, man, we're helpless. What can we possibly do on our own to change this problem, to overcome this problem? That's kind of the point. And that point will come into sharper focus next week when we get into what's called total depravity. So you have your handout for next week. Lesson number four, it's on total depravity, which really accentuates the sin problem. I guess I, I, I shouldn't say we're, all, we're done with the sin problem. We technically have a, a few more lessons on the sin problem. Next week, total depravity. The week after that, total inability. And then we'll, we'll really have a, a full understanding of the sin problem. And we'll launch right into you know, these doctrines of grace and how, how different sides try and overcome and, and, and identify how do we overcome that sin problem. Does God do it? Do we do it? That's what we're trying to get at. Okay, you made it. Here's really good news. <laughs> <laughs> this was going to be, a, I'm, I'm sure, probably, without exception, that the most detailed lesson we'll do in the whole series. So it's all downhill from here. Now, when it comes to these intricacies, this is, you know, Romans 5.12. There's really no other way around it. you got to just get in there and get in some Greek and just... So thank you for bearing with it. I know it's kind of tedious, but... The other future lessons will not be that, you know, intense, intensive, so to speak. don't want to scare you away, but I know you guys can handle it. So anyway, do your homework. Come back next week. We'll do Toll Depravity. We're out of time, so I'm just going to pray. And if you have questions, you can come see me after. So let me pray, and we'll be dismissed. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time and study this evening. And Lord, your word is, is so rich when we when we just read it. At bedtime, when we peruse it as casual reading, Lord, but at the same time, your your word is is rich and and deep, and it is worthy to be studied, and there's so much to say, and we want to know what the words mean, what the verses say. We want to sometimes dig deep, and that's how we learn, Lord, and so we thank you for this evening and for illumining us to see the truth. We thank you for Christ, who is our righteousness, Lord, and, and help this study not merely to be academic, Although this is a Bible study and we're trying to to inform our our minds in the truth, may we never detach our minds from our hearts, Lord. We've learned tonight about Christ and his one act of righteousness on the cross where he died and took all of our sin. He overturned our sin, he overturned Adam's sin, and, and through his one act, we can be justified. And I pray we all leave tonight really reflecting on that and remembering what Christ did for us, that we can be completely forgiven of our sin, we can be made peace are at peace with you, Lord. Uh, this, this state of war can be ended. you reconcile us to yourself. We just receive it all through Christ's one act of righteousness, Lord. So we, we thank you again tonight for the cross. We praise you for the cross of Christ, and may we now live in light of his one act. Uh, help us to, to follow him, to, to lay down our lives as well, and, and to give him all the glory for what he did for our sin problem. We're not done, Lord, so we pray you continue to teach us about sin that we can later fully understand what you did to solve it even more. But we already glorify you tonight for what we've learned. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.